This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who join me today is Joe Mungo-Reed, author of the novel We Begin Our Ascent. Reed has an MFA in creative writing from Syracuse University and is currently working on his PhD. His novel, We Begin Our Ascent, tells the story of Solomon, a professional bike racer who rides as a domestique for a team competing in the Tour de France. His job as a workhorse rider, protecting and supporting the team's star rider, at first appears to be the perfect job until the realities of true competition take their toll. The novel focuses on Solomon's racing life and home life, including how he fell in love with his wife Liz and their entrance into parenthood. We began the discussion with Joe Mungo-Reed talking about how he got into writing. Yeah, I got into it, I guess, from maybe a, a comedic side. I was doing quite a lot of comedy during my undergrad, and Edinburgh is a big comedy city. They have the Edinburgh Festival every summer. And I was enjoying doing that, but sort of think I wasn't very good at the performing. I quite enjoyed the writing, but I was a, a really appalling, uh, appalling performer of, of comedy. So I sort of thought, what can I do that gives me the same kind of feeling of creation and of the kind of nice mechanics of um, making a joke or making a funny sketch? And I was sort of drawn to short story writing and first attempts were maybe funny short stories. But as I went on, I sort of gained the confidence to try and expand my repertoire a bit and make them sort of deeper and more literary in tone. So I came out of my um, degree having written, I don't know, 10 or 15 short stories and thinking, God, I I like this. This is is rewarding. So you have the comedy background, and are you a cyclist? I am to the extent I do. I do it for leisure. A lot of the cycling in the book is, you know, the high end cycling is not something I've I've experienced. I have raced, but a pretty low level, and I mostly did it actually as I was writing the book, as I was living in uh, Syracuse, New York, and uh, I would yeah head out on weekends and do some races just to get the feeling of riding in a peloton, riding in a big group, pushing oneself. The reason I I didn't cycle that much in adulthood was when, as a teenager, I tra- trained for the 800 meters quite a lot. I um, I ran that between the ages of uh, 12 and 17, and I would go to the track five six times a week and compete every weekend of the summer. So I kind of felt like. I didn't ever want to do serious training ever again once I'd reached adulthood because that was sort of quite an intense um, commitment for a portion of my life. And I just, well, number one, I found out I didn't have what it takes to to really be the top, top, top level. And number two, I I found there were other more fulfilling things to do with my time. So now I uh, enjoy cycling as an observer much more than a participant. And you didn't want to dope? No, no. I I mean, thankfully for me, that wasn't really an option at that stage. The doping angle of this book is something that I sort of wanted to approach, not necessarily because of the subject of doping per se, but because of sort of feeling like it's something quite current to to society in general, just being an issue that I'm quite interested in general. Because I think... um, in terms of cycling doping, I, I don't actually think it's that dissimilar from, 
you know, being at college and taking a load of Ritalin to getting your exams done. I think, I think the kind of performance enhancing debate is one that sort of extends beyond sport now. So that's, that's what drew me in rather than firsthand experience. So tell me a little bit more about the origin of We Begin Our Ascent. It is about a bike racer named Solomon who is, it's told in first person, and it's about his experience being a domestique. So what, what drew you to writing about the Tour de France and a domestique and biking in general? I almost can't say why I wrote the first sort of 20 pages. I guess I was just sort of interested in, I guess maybe in the domestique role um, in terms of what's it like not to be that person who's incredibly successful and makes all these sacrifices to be very successful, but to be that person who makes those same sacrifices to be only mediocre. I guess that was a question I had whenever I would watch a sports event because, you know, for the best in the world, the, uh, the rewards are very obvious, but for the not so good, the work is just as much, the pressure just as much, and the rewards are kind of intangible. So I, I sort of wanted to investigate that. And I wrote maybe 20, 30 pages of it thinking, I don't know what this will be. Will it be a story? You know, will it be a novella? But I had those 20, 30 pages and then I started my MFA and it was the first thing I took into a workshop and it went down really, really well with my peers and uh, and my teacher was Dana Spieter at the time and she, she was incredibly encouraging and has been very encouraging since. And I guess it was, it happened to be a subject that, it felt like there weren't a lot of other people writing about and um, people felt that I was describing the, the world well. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a sucker for praise. So I just chased that for the rest of my MFA and finished the book. So for people who might not know, domestiques are, they're sort of there to protect the rider, to pace the rider, to sort of shelter him maybe in some ways they're like a bridesmaid or the best man or something (laughs) tell me a little bit about the psychology of of your character Saul and and his work as a domestique yeah I I think the idea of um a bridesmaid or something like that is, is is a very good is a very good analogy because it's a role that's both I think very very difficult but actually also needs a sort of quite self-effacing personality because the idea is that the domestique is the rider who's always in the headwind providing shade, wind shade for the, the star rider who's actually going to win the race and win the acclaim. And I, w- I was sort of interested in that role because it both requires incredible incredible determination, but it also requires a sort of amount of egolessness, I think, to do. And in Soul, the character, I was trying to create someone who sort of uniquely fitted that role, someone who is sort of able to derive pleasure from becoming a cog in a machine rather than necessarily being a sort of individual. So you're juxtaposing his character throughout the novel with him meeting his wife, marrying her, having a child. So you're going back and forth between his life as a domestique and then his domestic life. Tell me a little bit about their relationship and Liz. 
Uh, yeah, I, so, so Liz uh, is a, a geneticist and um, she's working very hard uh, studying uh, zebrafish, cutting them up, trying to work out what different genes do in these fish, hoping that the, these discoveries might find uh, some kind of medical breakthrough or some crucial information about how bodies heal themselves. Um, and what draws these two characters together, Liz and Sol, is that they're both doing very, very difficult careers uh, that demand a lot of them and uh, which have fairly uncertain terms of success. So they're, they're sort of relieved to find someone else in the world who sort of understands their struggles and their insecurities when it comes to chasing something that's quite elusive. Um, but also, I think a tension in the relationship comes from the fact that they're both uh, quite uh, self-willed and determined. And in different ways, their careers sort of ask more of them than they might be able to give when they have to think about each other and they have to think about the sun that they have together. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about there's two kind of essential relationships that sort of weigh down on Saul. There's his relationship with Fabrice, which is much more maybe breezy and jokey and not as serious. And Fabrice is the star writer for their team. And then there's the manager, Raphael, who really comes down every day on on the writers. And it's really his plan that they're carrying through. And he is the one that ultimately Saul is serving more so than even Fabrice. So can you talk about these relationships? Yeah, certainly. So um, with Fabrice, I wanted to create a character who was very uh, sort of happy with himself, actually, very uh, sort of completed by the activity he takes part in. I mean, I think I think these sportsmen are maybe, or, or sports people are maybe at uncommon but I, I sort of feel like they do exist I want to imagine say that Roger Federer enjoys playing tennis um, or maybe Lionel Messi enjoys playing soccer that you do sort of encounter certain athletes that seem to have a grace and a essential almost irrational love of doing what they're doing and I wanted Fabrice to be this kind of character to offer a perspective on sort of souls more gritty kind of grinding along uh, in service of the team. I wanted someone for whom it's just a joy to cycle. So Fabrice becomes this sort of light, graceful presence. And I think in the course of the book, to an extent, plays it up because part of his role as team leader is to sort of keep the mood going. So as you observe, he, he is quite a light character. Whereas in contrast, Raphael, the team leader, I think also somewhat consciously becomes a cartoon of himself. I mean, that was my idea in the book, that he he's sort of taking on the role of bad guy because someone needs to be sort of geeing these riders along and doing all these slightly dodgy things that uh, are happening in the era in which this book is set. So in Raphael, I wanted to create a a slightly sort of mean and ruthless character but a certain amount of that meanness and ruthlessness the intention on my part was that a certain amount of that was um sort of knowing in a way actually I wanted him 
to be cartoonish um, in the way that I feel like someone like Bill Belichick is cartoonishly villainous in a way. I, I think that in some ways the media narrative around sport encourages team managers or certain players to be to be almost hyper villainous and that one way to cope with that is to to sort of accentuate it and embrace it and in uh, Raphael I wanted to create a character who does exactly that well I can't imagine actually being a team manager team leader in something like the tour where you have this very extended competition with strategy and so much intensity and people giving their best every day and calculating, you know, down to seconds, what could change the race. I can't imagine someone not being like that. H- had you studied any real coaches? Uh, yeah, I read quite a lot of, um, a lot of cyclist biographies um, in doing this. <laughs> Most of them actually written before a lot of the uh, doping stuff came out. So they actually become very, very boring because, you know, it's, it's like reading a rock star's biography and they can't admit to drinking or taking drugs. <laughs> um, it, the, they just are biographies of extreme self-denial and being bullied by these slightly insane team managers so I took a lot of that from uh, from a few of the biographies I read um, and also yeah just I, I am a sports fan and I, I guess I, I took certain um, I tried to, to take certain personality traits from f- famous sports characters I mean there's a soccer coach called uh, uh, Jose Mourinho who um, is sort of cartoonishly villainous and I uh, used him as inspiration to a degree in some of the pronouncements that Raphael makes. So in addition to to coaching these teams Raphael Raphael is also orchestrating the doping so we don't see that immediately in the book but as we get deeper into the book and deeper into the tour with these riders we see I mean some of it is is flashback you going back but it's really as we get more into the book that we sort of learn that they're going to use their own blood, they're going to take maybe some hormones and that sort of thing. How did you fold this in? And, and you were saying earlier, of course, this is such a reality, you can't ignore it with the bike race culture today. I mean, I think I think it, it has actually got cleaner in bike race culture because they have got a lot... Um, they have got a lot firmer on on the controls on this, although there's obviously a, um, a sort of slight doping scandal running on as we speak. But I I was like everyone else, I was totally hooked on uh, the various revelations that came out with the U.S. postal team and even the even the the stuff that was happening before. My book is not necessarily based on any real case, but it, it's not unprecedented for teams to actually have their spouses smuggling drugs or for team managers to be smuggling huge amounts of hormones and then claiming it's for their own personal use rather than their team. So um, a, a lot of this I um, I sort of took from, from actually reading the tour and following it. And uh, I guess I found it fascinating and wanted to bring it to perhaps a, a wider audience um, because I think, as I said earlier, I think it it does um, make quite vivid uh, 
the kind of uh, compromises, the kind of decisions that people are making in the wider culture, you know, in terms of, uh, as I said, taking like stimulants at college or I don't know, do, doing some kind of dodgy financial dealings. I mean, I think they're all on a uh, on a continuum, this kind of pushing around in the gray areas, crossing different lines. I was very interested in that. Well, as a as a former bike racer, amateur, and someone who's thought about this a lot in your book, sometimes I wonder, you know, if everyone's doing it, obviously there's that pressure that you have to do it. Does it even the field? I think that's an interesting question. I mean, I think for some of the specific doping that was done in cycling, I mean, particularly in the 90s through the noughties, the EPO doping, which increases the blood's ability to carry oxygen, some of that was quite specifically increasing one area. I mean, it was like um, what we what sport ended up testing was people's ability to process that drug well because it worked for certain people better than others. So I suppose the, the idea that everyone is doing it there for a level playing field is not necessarily true because some people just respond to stuff better than others. So I can see why that makes people fairly uneasy. I think the idea of doping is going to, as various things become more and more possible, I mean, I was reading earlier in the week about these uh, these Nike trainers that apparently make you run a, a little bit faster because they have some carbon thing in the middle of the shoe. And, you know, that's not doping. But if certain people in a marathon field have some $200 trainers that make them run 2% faster over the course of a marathon. I mean, that's a huge advantage. Um, and I think we're going to increasingly, increasingly bump up against uh, problems of what do we really want sport to measure? Because obviously sporting ability is not shared out fairly. So we're beginning the idea of the pureness of sport on some fairly... Uh, unstable ground and then sometimes it feels like the definitions of what is allowed and what's not allowed are sort of drawn in quite arbitrary places um so so yeah i, I definitely think it's a uh, a complicated question well it also can be a question of who dopes better you know even if it's sort of you want to say it's a level playing field because everyone's doping some people are better. Some people have better doctors. They have better drugs. They have better ways of hiding it. They, you know, you have no idea. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think I think what we're what we're going to have to ask ourselves as viewers of sport, or even viewers of you know contemporary life in general, is what do we actually want to be rewarding people for? Do we want to be rewarding them for training? Do we want to be rewarding them for their genetics? Do we want to be rewarding them for I don't know certain economic advantages I mean another side of certain sports is is the the cost of entry I mean Britain every year does very well at equestrian sports because you know not many other countries can afford dancing horses um, I mean that's not necessarily doping but it means Britain wins medals and dressage while uh, you know China doesn't. So there's all sorts of questions when it comes to what we reward people for and where we give prestige. 
So one of the things I think the book emphasized is that how difficult it is for riders to have intimate relationships, at least during the race. So we see, you know, through flashbacks and in current day that Saul meets Liz, falls in love and has a child and has a child maybe about a year before this race is taking place. And he talks to her on the phone, but he can't really see her. She decides to come visit him on a day off. And I felt like previously we see these lives as very separate. They're both working on their careers. But then when the race is going on, she's more there to support him. And she ends up being asked by the team manager to do some things that for the race and for the racers and for her husband that Saul doesn't want her to do. So she gets drawn, I mean, she gets drawn into the team's doping, basically, uh, sort of. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to have that element in the book because I thought it was a way of particularly really juxtaposing these two worlds of family and work and really, I, I mean, I think it's Kurt Vonnegut who talks about, you know, torturing your characters. And I, I feel like this was the one thing that they, Sol and Liz, are not prepared for in the in the context I set them up in. So I, I wanted to to draw her into this world that, in a sense, I think for for a lot of the book, he he wants to keep her out of. And I also wanted to show that, I mean, in a sense, she's she's quite good at it because she's a scientist and she's quite efficient. And um, I think that also, I hope, sets up attention in that she's somewhat more competent than a few of the other chances around the team. Um, and yet it's more skin in the game for soul and uh, that that hopefully makes things a little bit intense why do you think she did it my intention I guess was uh, to sort of uh, show that I, I think she's maybe seeking a sense of of closeness or wanting to help um, I think part one part of being in a relationship is realizing that allowing oneself to be helped is actually a great service to your partner. I think sometimes uh, one wants to keep one's struggles private, but actually when you consent to a relationship, you don't just choose to share your successes. You sort of choose to allow yourself to be helped at the same time. And I think Sol, this kind of character who's so used to helping others, is not ready to be helped himself. So I wanted to investigate that tension. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yeah, certainly. So I'm going to read from uh, Joey Williams's book, The Quick and the Dead, uh, which is one of my favorite novels. And uh, she's definitely influenced me as a writer. So this is um, just a little excerpt from, uh, it's pretty much the second paragraph of the first chapter. For more than a month now, after school, Alice had been caring for six-year-old fraternal twins, Jimmy and Jackie. They lived with their mother, who was away all day cutting hair. Their father was off in another state, building submarines. Hair, submarines. It was disgusting, Alice thought. She did not find the children at all interesting. They cried frequently, indulged themselves in boring, interminable narratives, were sentimental and cruel, and when frustrated would bite. 
They had a pet rabbit that Alice feared for. She made them stop giving it bards all the time and tried to interest them in giving themselves bards, although in this she was not successful. She assisted them with special projects for school. It was never too early for investigative reporting. They should not be dis dissuaded by their teacher's discomfort. To discomfort teachers was one's duty. They were not too young to be informed about the evils of farm subsidies, monoculture and overproduction. They should know, if only vaguely at first, about slaughterhouses. They shouldn't try to learn everything at once. They'd probably get discouraged. But they should know how things come into being, like ponies, say, and how they're taken out of being and made into handbags and coats. Tell me more about why you chose that. Uh, the thing that always charms me about Joy Williams is the way one sees in her work a thought and you think, gosh, I've had that thought. In this particular uh, reading, I feel like the thought is, you know, looking after children is quite hard and children can be quite annoying. Um, but then beyond that, the way in which she sort of leads you in a sort of manic way towards a thought that one totally hasn't ever had before, but is sort of somehow implicated in. So I love that the way in this in this passage, uh, Alice, who's one of the main characters in in the novel, it, she's so brought out by the way that this this kind of frustration at being a babysitter, which is so relatable, leads inexorably towards a very very specific um, preoccupation of Alice's, which is to do with animal rights and um, wanting to to educate these children in being sort of tiny, tiny activists. Can you read a passage that you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard to write or changed a mm. lot from the first draft? Okay, so this touches actually a little bit on stuff we've been talking about already. So it's uh, midway through the book and it's just after um, Sol has, has revealed to Liz that uh, he's doping. I'd expected her to be angry, but suddenly I was the one who felt wronged. She had accepted in moments something I'd wrestled with for days. I don't want to do this, I said. Of course not. Have you not thought that I might hold out? You're committed, she said. You're serious. But this is not the main measure of seriousness. Sure, she said. She spoke with exasperated disbelief. But you're not going to give up your career because of it, are you? No, I said. Yet I felt defensive, wounded that she hadn't considered the possibility of my choosing otherwise. Had she been waiting for this moment? Did she take it as evidence of my professional progression? I've worried about the idea a lot, I said. Of course, she said. That's why I'm agreeing, assuming you've thought it through, trusting you. It's not simple, I said. She nodded in agreement. The others are doing it, right? If every X does Y and you are an X. She sat back, a hand on her stomach. Let me understand. Don't put a face on for me. Tell me why you chose that. So uh, that, was a, that was a passage I worked over quite often in the writing of the book. Um, initially, it was a point at which Liz uh, was performing the role of, I guess, sort of doubting Sol's direction in terms of the drug taking. Uh, because, you know, the book at that point really needed an essential tension around this decision or a context to say that to not make his decision to go into these performance enhancements 
too readily, too easy. Um, and in initial drafts, I had uh, Liz being quite forcefully against um, against the drug taking. Um, but as I went on with the book, I sort of felt like that struck an essentially false false note to me. It seemed, first of all, that she wasn't necessarily a kind of character who would do that, but more importantly, that I think that initial reaction sort of insulted the the audience's intelligence uh, to to a degree because, of course, the audience knows that doping is probably something he shouldn't be doing and something that's going to lead uh, to problems later on in the novel. So I wanted her to have a response that was perhaps more unique and sort of brought out more of a, a different different character uh, and a different side to their marriage. In the UK, there's a uh, TV show on at the moment called McMafia. I don't know if, if you guys have that over in the States, um, but it's about a, a guy who's sort of slowly drawn into taking on his uncle's uh, business as a sort of uh, Russian mafioso in the UK. And in, in that series, his um, fiance, her, her role in the series seems to be always advocating for him not being part of the mafia. And it's one of the most boring characters in, in TV, unfortunately, for the actor who has to play the role because she just exists to deliver things that the audience knows, you know, to, to, to be a, a, a you know, the wrongness of what he's doing. And I, I really didn't want Liz to be that kind of character, to be someone who's just saying, don't do this. I wanted her to be more complicated. Where do you write? Uh, I write at my desk uh, in the living room. So I don't go to coffee shops or co-working or anything. I, I like uh, my own house because I'm very easily socially guilted. And if I go to coffee shops, I feel like I buy an Americano every 30 minutes and end up wired on caffeine before I've even written 200 words. Uh, so I, I work from home always. Uh, first thing in the morning, I try and get writing done before anything else. Ideally, before I've started wading into emails or all of that kind of stuff that draws one away from uh, invention, I found. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Probably exercise, actually. So um, biking or running. Um, I'm perpetually telling myself that I should take up some kind of meditation, but uh, that hasn't happened yet. So in the meantime, I seek thoughtlessness through uh, running until I can't think. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? So this current novel, I had great feedback because I was, I was doing it um, over the course of an MFA. Um, and actually now I'm, I'm back in school again. I'm, I'm going for a PhD over here in the UK. So I'm at the University of Manchester and I go down to Manchester a couple of times a month and uh, I have a new first reader uh, who is uh, my thesis advisor down in Manchester, uh, who Francis Levinson, who's an excellent poet and superb uh, line by line reader. It's really enlightening to be line read by a poet who does not take for too many uh, repetitions or slightly sloppy metaphors. How have you dealt with rejection? Redrafting for this book. Uh, I I redrafted it many more times than I wanted to. And there were times when I thought, oh, time for another project. Uh, 
I, th- I think the best the best way to deal with rejection is is probably it, it for me is probably more work um just having something else that you have hope hope for and putting your all into that because uh focusing on the rejection is uh i think a path to madness or uh, desperation and what is your favorite word i've been having a think about this one i uh francis actually uh my thesis advisor i was talking about earlier was noting how often i use the word bizarre so i i suppose bizarre is maybe my favorite word it has a nice kind of internal tension with those double z's You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Joe Mungo-Reed, author of the new novel, We Begin Our Ascent. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.